0: Welcome to the Friday Men's Breakfast Podcast, brought to you by the Chapel Podcast Network. In the seventh lesson from our study of the Israelites' journey in the wilderness, we will see God's people move quickly from worshiping on the mountaintop to wallowing in idolatry with the story of the golden calf. So open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 24 and join us as we continue to learn how the journey from bondage to freedom points us to Jesus Christ. get ready for our our lesson today. Our theme is that the journey from bondage to freedom points us to Jesus. And just to get us oriented to what we're gonna experience today, how many of you have been to Busch Gardens? How many of you have ever ridden the ride Mock Tower? A few, okay. If if you haven't experienced this madness, it's crazy. One year, a few years ago, my wife and I had the opportunity to go by ourselves and you approach this thing, and the first thing you notice as you look up is it's pretty tall. And you get in this uh, carriage, and it starts to raise you up slowly. And, th- and this thing is crazy, because you get maybe about a third of the way up, and you think, okay, this is probably it. And you look up, and you realize there's still a long way to go. And, and finally, you get to the very top of this thing, and you can see all around, because it's very flat. And then you hear this, tss, and then all of a sudden you drop. And it's invigorating and it's ridiculous and it's crazy. And I've written it once, I'm not sure I'll ever write it again. And you scream, um, or if you don't have a voice, you just. But anyway, so you go from one of the highest of heights to the lowest of lows very quickly. And as I think about what we're going to see today, it's almost a microcosm of what we see with the Israelites in Exodus 24, where they experience the highest of heights. To Exodus 32, where they experience what seems very quickly, although it's about a 40-day period in between, one of the lowest of lows. And our lesson today is entitled A Covenant, a calf, and consequences. And we'll be looking at parts of Exodus 24 and parts of Exodus 32. So whether you're joining us here or joining us online later, open your Bibles to Exodus 24. And no good Bible study begins uh, unless it has a map. So that's right. So you can see here, uh, as, as Dale and as Max have pointed out, a great point, by the way, that the location of Mount Sinai is not completely known. There's sort of a more traditional view of it down there in the middle of the map um, on the Sinai, current Sinai Peninsula, and then a little bit to the east, another possible location. But this is where the Israelites are, And this is where they are spending some time communing with God and Moses in particular. And I appreciate what Dale mentioned last week, which I thought was an outstanding point, that you have the framework and the flow of the biblical law, which talks about the two greatest commandments of love God, love neighbor, and that then flows into the 10 words or the 10 commandments, and then that then flows into the additional 601 commandments that we see. So, as Dale pointed out, Moses, as the man between the Israelites and God, has been receiving these commandments. And that's going to become important because uh, Moses is sort of up on the mountain receiving these words from God, but God himself spoke orally those words to the people of Israel. And then he continued to give Moses the additional commandments and additional statutes. So, we, we find ourselves then in Exodus 24... And here is the the flow and the structure for our time here together. Uh, The first section is confirming the covenant. This is the high. Then crafting the calf in chapter 32. This is the low of lows. And then as a result of that, carrying out the consequences. So we'll look at confirming the covenant. And again, really from what Max was talking about in chapter 19 two weeks ago, through what Dale talked about last week with the Ten Commandments. This is really the high point of the book of Exodus. In fact, uh, one one scholar has said it's the ideal ending of the book of Exodus. That If you could just press pause at the movie at this point in chapter 24, it would be a wonderful and they all live happily ever after. Unfortunately, we'll see it didn't quite end up that way. But in confirming the covenant, Israel is going to be established formally as... Uh, God's people who are set on God's purpose, this community of people in the Old Testament. As Dale pointed out, he has already saved them. They are his chosen people, but now they are formally entering into this covenant agreement with God that he will do what he says he will do and that they will promise to respond as he has said they should respond, which is in obedience to his law. So we pick up the action in in, uh, verse 1. Of chapter 24. Then he, that is God, uh, said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nabab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. So we see uh, Moses and his brother and his nephews, they're, they're sort of the religious leadership, and these 70 elders or leaders are invited up part of the way to the mountain of God, and then God says, I want Moses to come up near. Everyone else is going to remain um, you know, on this mountainside. Meanwhile, the people of Israel are at the base of the mountain watching all of this happen. So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules are his righteous decrees. Is another way to translate that word rules. Um, so Moses is communicating all that God had told him about Who they are to be, not just the Ten Commandments, but these other statutes and these other commandments. And here's the people's response. This is important. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So they have affirmed their confidence that they will be an obedient people to what God has said. And now Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. So he's writing down this agreement that the people have now committed to verbally. It's becoming a little more permanent because he's writing it down. Uh, He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. So what we see, and you can sort of see it in this black and white picture behind me, that the altar represents God as uh, the, the creator of this covenant agreement. And then the 12 pillars represent the nation of Israel coming into this agreement with God. It's gonna be this formal ceremony, much like uh, you know, a former, formal legal ceremony or a, or a wedding ceremony that joins man and woman. And uh, we continue in verse five. And he sent, sent a young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings and oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. He put this blood from these oxen in these large bowls. Um, and then uh, he threw the other half, he threw against the altar. So he's he's sprinkling and throwing half of the blood on the altar, which represents God committing himself to this this marriage between him and his people. Then he took the book of the covenant, that is these words from God that he had just written down, and he read it in the hearing of the people. And here again they say, all that the Lord, God, the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. Not only are they saying we'll do it, but they're emphasizing we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood, this is in the basins, and threw it on the people. Now, I, you know, in, in our medical profession today, you're not seeing many people in hospitals on purpose throwing blood upon the patients. That's probably not very um, sterile. Uh, but what we find in the Old Testament is that this was a symbol that the people themselves were committing to this covenant and agreement, and it was ratified through the spreading and the sprinkling of this blood. It was like a blood oath that they were taking to be obedient to God. So he throws the blood on the people and said, behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. He was confirming this agreement. And then uh, our section concludes where they have a bit of a little worship service going on here. Uh, Then Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel went up And they saw the God of Israel, which is a fascinating statement because we know from other parts of the Old Testament that no one can see the Lord and live, but they clearly saw a a manifestation of him and God allowed them to live. And it's described um, that there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness, almost a reminder of what we see in Revelation where we learn about the heavenly Jerusalem and streets are paved with gold that is so pure, it is transparent and different stones. They get a glimpse into God's heavenly glory on this mountainside, but they they are allowed to live after they see it. And here's their worship service in verse 11. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel and they beheld God and they ate and they drank. They had a celebration of this great moment this was the high of highs. Like I said, it was the ideal ending to the book of Exodus. We could just conclude it there and have the credits roll. It would have made for a great, happy movie. Well, at the end of verse of chapter 24, we read, Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And while he's up in this cloud, and this is probably, we get some of the Ten Commandments, the Charlton Heston scene and things like that. We, um, we know that God was giving Moses some specific instructions about the tabernacle and the articles for the tabernacle, the altar, the Ark of the Covenant, uh, what was to be constructed so that God would have a more permanent place physically among his people in the tabernacle. And so Moses receives these instructions over these 40 days and these 40 nights. And if you know from studying the Bible that there are several periods of 40 days and 40 nights. It was a period of preparation or testing where God was at work preparing his people for something else. So the question is, as we move past those chapters, which talk about the construction of what the tabernacle would be and the Ark of the Covenant in its description, we move to chapter 32. And the question is, Where does it go from here? Well, if you're on the mountaintop, and this was a mountaintop experience, guys, there's really nowhere to go but down. And it is literally and metaphorically all downhill from here for the nation of Israel. It's like being at the top of that mock tower, and then all of a sudden you're at rock bottom. And that's where we get to the crafting of the calf. Um, There's a, a a painting here by Nicholas Poussin, who, uh, it's called The Adoration of the Golden Calf from the 17th century. It's a, a well-known painting. I really like, like art, so whenever I can, I try to include it because it makes me think, it uh, makes me feel smart. Um, but really, you can just Google it. I, had, I didn't even know the name, guys. I didn't know the, uh, the artist. I had to Google famous golden calf painting, and, and it came up. I said, oh yeah, that's the one that I wanted. So I put it in there and had to figure out his name. Anyway, those are just secrets. For those online, don't tell your friends. Um, so we have the, the crafting of the calf. And uh, it it really was a low point. Uh, This is the real end, so to speak, of the story of Exodus because it it impacts everything that happens from this point forward. In fact, one scholar, uh, John Seilhammer, has written throughout the remainder of the Pentateuch. That would be all the way through the end of the book of Deuteronomy. The incident of the golden calf cast a dark shadow across Israel's relationship with God. He likens it to how in Genesis 3, when man and woman sin and rebel against God, that casts a whole shadow upon the story of humanity. Uh, this really casts a shadow upon the whole story of Israel, leading up to the end of the books of Moses in Deuteronomy. Um, what we find now, it, uh, we find. I'll just read uh, verse 18 of chapter 31 to give us context. And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, The two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And so uh, these would be, as you see Charlton Heston here from the Ten Commandments, that well-known image of these two stone tablets, which have the, the Ten Words or the Ten Commandments engraved on them by the finger of God. Moses is now becoming, he's going to descend down from the mountain now that he has these two tablets. And here's what happens in chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down. Now, I'll just pause there. That word in Hebrew means uh, to um, essentially to cause to feel shame or disappointment. So it's not necessarily that Moses was delayed, but from the people's perspective, he was taking too much time. 40 days and 40 nights, they were growing more and more concerned with each passing day. And I suppose on a human level, we can't blame them. I mean, if we were there, we'd wonder what's happening in that cloud. And maybe after two days, you think maybe he's coming down. And after a week, well, still no Moses. And the troops are beginning to get a little bit restless. And what we find the 40 days and 40 nights was a testing time for Moses, but also for the people of God. Because they began to grow really insecure because Moses was their only mediator between God and themselves. And they started to grow concerned that maybe, just maybe, something had happened to him. Maybe he had been killed. They couldn't see into the the cloud. Maybe he had decided to get up and leave and walk off and spend the rest of his life alone with the Lord. They didn't know. But they started to grow insecure because they started to believe that their only access point to relate to God was now being taken away. And what we find is that their their insecurity with their impatience led to idolatry. So we continue reading what they chose to do when Moses was delayed to come down from the mountain. And the people gathered themselves together to Aaron, that is Moses' brother, who was the the priestly representative here. He was sort of the number two guy. Like, you know, if something happens to the president, people go to the vice president And they said to Aaron, up, make us gods, which by the way, that sounds kind of strange, but make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Again, they thought maybe he was dead. They didn't know. So Aaron said to them, take off the the rings of gold that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Remember, when they left Egypt, they got lots of gold and riches. So the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and they brought them to Aaron. (laughs) This is is the moment where it gets sad. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it. He fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. Scholars believe it wasn't necessarily a, a solid gold Calf. It may have been a uh, wooden framed inside structure that was covered with, with gold. Uh, but the word fashioned here is the same word in Hebrew that's used in Genesis 2, 7, where the Lord God fashioned or made man from the dust of the earth. So we see a complete perversion even of this word of God in his creation making man. Now we see one of God's creations trying to make or fashion, a god. You see that that twist there? Um, It's a sad moment, and it's a sadly ironic, ridiculous moment that there is a thought that you can make a god who will go before you. And here's what Aaron says. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. What? Are you kidding me? You mean all the plagues in Egypt and Parting of the Red Sea and the Exodus, and God constantly, Moses constantly saying, The Lord your God brought you out of the land of Egypt. And and here, so much is forgotten about what God has done. Now, what we read next, and and interestingly, just for context, this is not the, the only time that this language would be used in the Old Testament. Many, many years later, there's a king of Israel named Jeroboam, and he fashions two golden calves at two locations that are alternate locations. They're not true, legitimate alternate locations for worship. But he's trying to, to move people away from worshiping in Jerusalem in the southern part of the, of the nation to now worship in a place that's closer to where he is leading them. Um, and so in 1 Kings 12, 28, we see, So the king, that is Jeroboam, took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold, your gods, O Israel, Who brought you up out of the land of Egypt? Uh, Not a true or good thing to say in any case. Because what was happening is that they were returning to the cult of the Egyptian worship that they had known for however many uh, generations that they had been there. Uh, The calf or the young bull was known to be used in, in ancient worship for pagan cults because it was seen even as the beast that the gods would ride on, so it was associated with the gods themselves. And this was an association with the cult of Egypt that often used bull or calf imagery in its own its own worship. So Aaron then, in verse five, when he saw this, he built an altar before it. He built an altar before this calf and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Now, commentators are sort of split. Was Aaron trying to sort of, make up for what he had done and create an altar for the Lord. And, oh, maybe if I just put this altar to the true Lord here, maybe they'll worship him and forget about the calf. Or was he trying to elevate the worship of this calf even more? Um, it's, It's kind of split on what exactly his intentions were. In any case, any of his efforts would have been too little too late because of this grievous sin that the nation had committed. So we continue reading in verse six. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and pr- brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, uh, this is a word that some scholars are again are split. Does this mean that they were in, engaged in some sort of um, illicit um, sexual rite that was happening oftentimes in ancient cultures and ancient worship? Um, maybe, possibly, in any case, their decision um, was one of sin, whether there was a sexual component to it or not. One commentator, John Durham, has this to write about this gathering. Uh, The celebration of an obligating relationship in Exodus 24. Remember, that's where we started. The blood is sprinkled. God is the God. People are going to follow and obey. Uh, now becomes, in Exodus 32, an orgy of the uh, desertion of responsibility. The people had just left. They, they thought Moses was gone. They, they took matters into their own hands. They were not willing to be patient and wait. And they left and they, um, they put God in the background for preference of a golden image that they believed brought them comfort and security. Meanwhile, up on the mountain, verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt. Notice that nuance. God, all along, has been saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. I, the Lord. Moses was saying, The Lord is the one who brought you out. Now, God is almost saying he doesn't want to have anything to do with his people. He says, Moses, the people that you, Moses, have brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves, they have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that, that my wrath may burn hot against them and that I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you. So we find that what God expresses to Moses is, I want to wipe out the sinful people and start over with you, Moses. And guys, in one of these um, many passages of the Bible that brings in God's sovereignty and control and mankind's uh, will and and prayer, and we find Moses stepping into an mediating role between the people where he appeals to God's truth and his mercy, and he says, God, please do not wipe out your people. These are the people that you promised to give them this land. Uh, Other nations will notice that they've been wiped out and wonder if you are faithful. And God hears the prayer and mediation of Moses and does not wipe out his people. Still, there would be consequences to come. So Moses is a masterful mediator. And that then leads to the carrying out of the consequences, which is our final section for this morning. We find, again, as uh, this scholar John Durham uh, writes, the special treasure people whose identity had been established by the arrival in their midst of the presence of Yahweh himself are suddenly in danger of becoming a people with no identity at all. Yahweh will not withdraw his presence. Though uh, things cannot be the same because Israel's innocence as the people of Yahweh's presence has been lost, Yahweh will remain with them still. So we find God in his mercy and his grace decides that he is going to continue to remain faithful to his promises. And so Moses descends the mountain and in verse 15 we read, he turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides, which we don't often think about that when we see visual representations, right? It's usually just on one side, but They're written on both sides. On the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were from the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. Now, Joshua has basically been been waiting as part of this for Moses to come down. Verse 17, when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp because it was an undiscernible noise. But, verse 18, Moses says, It is not the sound of shouting for victory, or the sound of cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And in the, in the Hebrew, it's, it almost reads like a poem. Not the sound of answering of might, or of answering of weakness, but answering in song. Moses is setting the record straight that there is something else going on here, and he knows he needs to go down and check it out. Uh, verse 19. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf, this is Moses' first, he heard from God that this is what had happened, and now this is his first visual sight of this moment of idolatry. And he saw the dancing. Moses' anger burned hot, just like God's anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain, which symbolized Israel had broken the covenant that God had made with them. They had not obeyed. They had not done all that the Lord God had said. And he took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to a powder and scattered it in the water and made the people of Israel drink it, which was a way of of casting judgment upon the people and the consequence for their sin of idolatry. Commentator Eugene Merrill has this interesting quotation in this manner, the thing that they had worshipped would become a product of their own waste. They were, had to, to drink in this powder made from the gold of this calf that was destroyed and it would leave their bodies as waste. It was the very epitome of worthlessness and impurity. Well, after this happens, Moses needs to, uh, he needs to confront his brother. He needs to have a little family discussion. A crucial conversation of sorts with his brother to say, how did this happen, brother? In verse 21, Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. Well, it already was. Uh, You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. This is, this is, read the humor in this, okay? So they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. <laughs> As if it is, this is just the epitome of, uh, of ridiculousness and defensiveness, Aaron's blaming the people. He's not taking any responsibility. He's saying, it was just such a hard situation, Moses. You know how evil they are. And he's not even taking the full responsibility. Out came this calf. We continue on. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose, uh, they were running free, they were running amok uh, to the derision of their enemies. Uh, surrounding nations would have looked at what the people were doing and said, this is a, a ridiculous group, who is their God, they're, they're silly Uh, Then Moses stood in the the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And the uh, the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Put your sword on the side of each of you, and go to and fro from the gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men... I want to emphasize it It was men that were slaughtered. About 3,000 men of the people fell. And the, and Moses said, Today you have been ordained or consecrated or your hand has been filled. That's how that word can be translated. For the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might be so a blessing upon you this day. And what we see is that a, a turning in the life of this these Levites is that they would... Um, more formally become this priestly class of people, that God would be their possession, God would be the one who provides for them as an expression of the blessing and the reward that they were faithful to God, unlike the people who were unfaithful and went after this calf. So this is an interesting, sort of confusing, sort of saddening series of scriptures But just to boil it down in simple terms for us, because I need that in my own life, how do we apply what we've learned? And the first point is this, beware of mountaintop experiences. Do you know what I mean by the mountaintop experience, that that spiritual high where uh, things are so great and you're having wonderful time? And, And by the way, it's not that they're evil. I will say that. When you have a great time with the Lord and Maybe you're in a worship service and you're you're feeling an incredibly deep connection to him. That's great, but that's not always the sustaining of our life's experience. And so if you're looking for life to be one solid mountaintop experience, then you're not facing the reality of our human experience, which is that we are sinners and we struggle, and that we are not going to be having one mountaintop experience that continues forever and ever, amen, until the new heavens and the new earth. That's when we get to that ultimate mountaintop experience. Until then, it's, it's a mountain and then there's a valley, a mountain and a valley. Does that kind of define your spiritual walk? I know it does for me. As we see these words that come out, just follow this, this pattern of thinking here. Exodus 24, 7. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. Well, what had the Lord already spoken? Exodus uh, 22, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. Dale talked about that last week. Exodus 32, 1, up, make us gods who shall go before us. Uh, Do you see that? Uh, Very clear that that is, um, if the mountaintop experience was something that they were hoping to sustain, it wasn't sustained. And they dipped very clearly into the valley because they forgot what God had done, and who he was. Mountaintop experiences do not last forever, but our devotion to the Lord is what must endure, even in the difficult times. I can remember a number of years ago, I had a a mountaintop experience of going to a a camp with some leadership that I was involved with in college down in North Carolina, and it was a great week. I mean, it was a wonderful week of connecting with the Lord and, and other people, and I got back uh, to where I was living in college to head home for the summer. And all of a sudden, I hit like a low. It was sort of like a situational depression of, I don't really feel like doing much at all in connecting with God after this mountaintop experience. And I was talking to a friend on the phone, and he was feeling the same way. And he said something profound. He said, you know what? I realized that no matter if I feel like it or not, God wants me to be faithful and to continue to be in his word, to continue to devote myself to him. And that's what the Israelites needed to do. When they were waiting and they were unsure and they were insecure, they needed to remain faithful. Remembering the mountain, but not trying to remain on that mountain. We find in Psalm 106, verses 19 through 21, these words. They made a calf in Horeb, which is another word for Sinai, and worshiped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. And this was a pattern of their life in the wilderness. And it can be a pattern in our lives as well. If we forget the Lord, uh, the Lord our God, who has done great things, we will find ourselves seeking someone else or something else in the valley when we are waiting like the Israelites We need to remember what happens on the mountain, yes. But we need to seek to maintain devotion to the Lord so that when the mundane valleys happen, we are remaining faithful to Him. That's why times like this are so important. That's why corporate worship on Sunday morning is so important, yes. But in addition to that, daily time in God's Word, consistent connection with God's people, that sustains us through those valleys when we're not experiencing the top of the mountain. The next application stems from this, and that is to wait on the Lord. We mentioned that the Israelites' insecurity led to their impatience, which led to their idolatry. They were just not willing to wait on the Lord. And we have to ask ourselves, when we are experiencing prolonged seasons of waiting, maybe this whole year and a half has felt like that for you, am I trusting that God is present and at work even when I'm experiencing what feels like his absence in my life. That's what they felt. They felt like God and Moses had become absent. Can we continue to trust that God is present in our waiting? And scripture is replete with people who were forced into periods of waiting. Abraham, Joseph, our friend Moses for 40 years. David, a 70-year captivity in Babylon. These are all prolonged periods of waiting where God invited his people to trust in him and to believe that he was still good, carrying out his work in the lives of his people, but at his pace. It's hard to do that because every fiber of our being wants to take control and wants to grab the reins. The author Jeff Mannion writes in The Land Between, the land between is difficult terrain. We make it exceedingly more difficult when our patience dwindles and we demand that God respond in our timing and on our terms, which is what the Israelites did with the golden calf. Instead, we have to remember words like 2 Peter uh, 3, 8 and 9. But do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And Peter writes this in the context of Christian believers who are waiting for the return of Christ and feeling like it's it's been taking longer than they would have liked. Maybe you can relate. I can relate to that. But not to count God's ways as being slow, because God's timetable is always perfect. Can we trust that God is present and that He is good, and finally, that He is worthy of our worship? That's the final application for this morning, which is worship the Lord only. It seems that the Israelites had actually more than, another idol than the golden calf. Moses had actually become an idol to them as well because they thought Moses was their only connection to the Lord. And again, thinking Moses had maybe been taken away from them, they took these steps that they did. And that shows us that anyone or anything that impedes our full devotion, full worship, full surrender to the one true God is an idol that is to be avoided and not worshiped. As Dale said last week, Um, God desires that there will be no other gods beside him, that exclusivity of the worship of him and him alone. Idolatry disrupts our relationship with God because it prevents us from experiencing the fullness of that relationship that he invites us into as his people in Jesus Christ. And yet here's the good news because I construct idols every day in my life and, and seek them every day of my life when I sin and when I fall short and so do you. But Jesus Christ provides a better way so that we might experience a better and fuller relationship with God than the Israelites were able to experience. That's because, as we've said, the journey from from bondage to freedom points us to Jesus Christ. That is because Jesus Christ provides an even better covenant and an even better way that we can relate to the one true God. Remember the covenant language from Exodus 24 where the blood was sprinkled? Jesus himself talks about that in terms of a new covenant or a new agreement with God. Luke twenty-two twenty 20, at the Last Supper, Jesus, uh, we read, And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, Jesus says, This cup is poured out for you. It is the new covenant in my blood. We see that Jesus is better than Moses. He's a better mediator who mediates a better covenant that we are privileged by grace to experience. And the author of Hebrews writes extensively about this. Hebrews 8, 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better. Since it is enacted on better promises. And then finally, Hebrews 12, 22 through 24. But you have come to Mount Zion. Again, Referring back to this moment of the Israelites being confirmed as God's people in Exodus 24. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem and to the innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood there's our reference one more time, that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Guys, no false God can ever do this. Only Jesus, the one true God, can accomplish this incredible work of this new covenant, inviting us by his grace through his shed blood that is then sprinkled effectively by faith upon our hearts and cleanses us and invites us into an incredible relationship, the forgiveness of our sins, and eternal life. And he invites invites everyone to enjoy this incredible covenant relationship if we simply surrender to him by faith and trust in him as our Savior. Beware of the mountaintop experiences, wait on the Lord, and worship the Lord Jesus only. May we be a man who does this this week, as we continue to be faithful in what he has called us to do, finding the freedom and the forgiveness that comes through Christ, who is a better Moses, who mediates a better covenant. Because the journey from bondage to freedom points us to Jesus. For our prayer, I want to pray this uh, benediction from the book of Hebrews for you. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for joining us for the Friday Men's Breakfast podcast. I hope you will join us again next week for the next leg of our journey. For more information on the Williamsburg Friday Men's Breakfast, please visit wcchapel.org slash mensbreakfast. Have a great week.